The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, and welcome to today's Barron's Live. I'm Abby Schultz, a senior writer at Barron's Penta, and today I'm joined by Claire McAndrew, founder of Arts Economics, which is an art analysis and consulting firm. Um, Claire works with Art Basel and UBS to put out a comprehensive report on the art market each spring. And yesterday, Art Basel and UBS published a survey of global collecting in 2022, which Claire wrote. So we're going to talk today about the findings and some of the fun dynamics of the art market. Claire, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks very much, Abby. It's a pleasure. Um, before we get started, I just want to remind the audience that you can write in questions during our session. And if we have time, we'll, we will try to get to them um, if you have any questions for Claire. So, so Claire, there was a lot of optimistic news in the report um, looking at the immediate future of the art market, despite a lot of economic and political uncertainty today. Um, so that's good news for those who sell art, considering we're about to enter a really huge auction art auction season in New York. And there's also Miami Art Week coming up in a month that's anchored by Art Basel, which um, is full of um, all kinds of exhibitions and, and fairs. So can you tell us a little bit about what you learned from the collectors who were surveyed last August for this report, maybe starting with how much they've spent on art so far this year and, and then their outlook for how the market is, is what their outlook is for the art market. Sure. It's been, it's been really fascinating, actually, to track the spending and behavior of these high net worth collectors that I've been surveying. I've actually been doing this with UBS for about six or seven years now. So we have, we're getting a good track and a good body of data to see how things have developed. But the last few years have obviously been really interesting because despite all the, the challenges um, we faced through the pandemic and even the, the difficulty they've had in accessing sales and even now in the kind of political and economic volatility and uncertainty. Um, I mean, the main really outstanding uh, thing we've uncovered is the incredible resilience of their spending. Um, so even in the first six months of the year so far this year, the median spend or the, the middle spend in the spectrum of high to low was 180,000. Uh, which is high in itself, but almost 30% of the collectors that we surveyed had already spent over a million dollars in the first half of the year and 10% had spent over 10 million. And I think that's interesting in itself, but it, what's what has been really um, interesting to watch is, is how that's tracked over the last few years. So if you go back to, say, 2019, before the pandemic, the median spend was only about 100,000. And it's advanced all the way as, as the, the last few years have, have progressed. So 2020, it went to 136,000, 2021, 164, and now up again in the first half of the year. So the first half of the year spending this year is bigger than the entire year in 2019 before the pandemic. Um, and if you actually, when we asked them to forecast their spending for the remainder of the year, it was even higher again. And if you put those two together for 2022, it would be over 370,000 for this year. I mean, it might not happen if people's enthusiasm and their spending plans don't always pan out, but we can see even in what they spent already, you can see the strength of, of demand and enthusiasm um, by these collectors, um, despite all the challenges that are in the world today and that we faced over the last couple of years. And I suppose that the question we were 
asking ourselves when we look at this research is why is that the case? And I think um, certainly if you look at the wealth dynamics, they're very strong and it's the high end of wealth, I suppose, that has gained um, through the pandemic. If you look at the very high end billionaire wealth, um, if you look at, say, for example, the data that Forbes puts together on how a billionaire wealth has tracked um, billionaire wealth is up nearly 50% from 2019, and it's the very, very top of that segment that's kept growing. Um, so that's a, one, I think, thing that's been really driving the spending. I mean, and there's other factors as well. I think a lot of collectors have told me more anecdotally that they're actively supporting artists and galleries through this difficult period. And I think it's also the case as well that, you know, art is a relative safe haven. I think when things are um, sort of uncertain and volatile elsewhere, people do tend to see art and tangible assets like this as a store of value when things are uh, risky and uncertain, they tend to anchor on assets like art and see it as a good, even if they don't have an investive mindset for collecting, it is a kind of a safe haven. It's, it's something that that's real and that you can keep and that tends to hold its value. So there's a lot of factors going on there, but fascinating to see, despite all the distractions, spending gaining each year that we've watched recently. Yeah, that's remarkable. Just that steady increase. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about the collectors? who were surveyed and, and, and maybe how that shifted over the years, if, if it has, and, and, and what is their range of experience with the art market? Sure. I mean, we've been, as I was saying, we've been doing this for six or seven years and we started off, we focused on the US first and then we've, we've expanded it ever since. And this is actually the biggest survey to date that I've done with UBS. Um, so we covered 11 different markets, the US, UK, France, Germany, mainland China, Hong Kong, Taiwan, Singapore, Japan, and Brazil. So it was a, it was a very wide spectrum, all important centers of wealth around the world and all interesting um, pockets of, of collecting as well. Um, and it's interesting, we, we do have screening criteria when, when we sample the collector. So the obvious one is wealth. So they had to have over a million investable assets. And then there was also spending criteria as well. So we wanted to, to gauge the activities and behaviors of people that were active in the market at the moment, not that necessarily had the biggest collections, but that were actively buying. So we could see how are they buying? What are they buying? You know, what channels are using and stuff. So we, we started out with a fairly balanced range of ages, but with those screening criteria, they, they had to have spent um, over 10,000 in both 2020 and 21. And they also had to have spent over 5,000 in the first half of this year. So that activity level did um, skew the, the sample that we have towards millennials and Gen X collectors. So nearly 80% of the sample is millennial and Gen X collectors. And that does reflect the most active segments of the market. So unfortunately, it did screen out some of the boomer collectors who are hugely important in the in the market and have some of the biggest collections, but the activity levels are not the same as some of the younger collectors. So there was a kind of a range of ages, but it tended to skew in the sample towards a kind of a, a middle to young segment. Um, and a range of experience levels as well. On average, um, in the, across the sample, people would be collecting about 13, 14 years, um, and a small f fraction, about 10%, less than five, and a small fraction at the other end, about 14, 15%, more than um, 20 years. So m most have at least a decade in exp of experience in collecting. So they're, so they're wealthy, active, experienced collectors on, for the most part. Right. And it, and it makes sense, uh, too, that the boomers may be not as represented just given the fact they have their collections and they're not buying as actively. So this does really tell us who's buying and, you know, who's driving the market right now, which is, is interesting. Yeah. Um, 
one thing you mentioned before was about the about high net worth uh, wealth and and how that's that's really you know kept up throughout the throughout these last few years despite the pandemic, but there was like a little dip, wasn't there? Um, it, it at the top end among billionaires that billionaire the number of billionaires and billionaire wealth fell by three percent. Um, they they did in the latest figures from from Forbes in in March. From March last year to March this year, there was a slight dip. But even if you're comparing, I just mean over the, the whole period from say pre-pandemic to now, um, wealth has increased. And and if you look at even the top ten, even in the last um, year, the top ten billionaires have still gained. So it's it's very um, sector specific. It's obviously the sectors that have been doing really well, whether it's kind of um, digital sectors, technology, you know, um, healthcare, and some some areas. Different different sectors have done really well, and this this is um, expanding um, wealth at that very high end. So although although there was a little bit of a dip, and some of that got to do with um, uh, Russia and um, some uh, less Chinese um, billionaires as well, but you know, as a whole, um, and especially if you look over the last ten years at the, the dynamics of of wealth, um, it is getting more larger and more concentrated at the top. And yes. this um, has a lot of issues in general, but I mean, whether good or bad, it, it is really supporting the high end of the market. And the high end is what has pulled the market the um the market out of the contraction it experienced during the pandemic in 2020. Yeah, that's yeah, that makes sense. Um so in the survey, what did you learn about the type of art that go that global collectors are drawn to? What's the mix of of works that they're attracted to? It's interesting to see because there's so much um discussion at the moment about new mediums and uh, particularly about digital art and there's yeah. a lot of um, kind of a media frenzy nearly over NFTs and um, art-related NFTs. But if you look at the content of collections, there's still you know around half of what's in these high net worth collectors' um, collections is the traditional mediums, paintings, sculpture, works on paper. Um, and if you prints, editions, um, photographs, they're another nearly 20%. And then digital art is a small, uh, smaller component. It's only about 15%, and about 9% of that is what we'd call crypto art or digital art associated with an NFT. So it's a still a relatively small component, but it has grown um, quite quite quickly over time. Um, and it's the same with spending. If you look at how much um, high net collectors are spending in terms of different mediums, digital art was about 17% overall on average this year. And that, that's grown from about 11% last year. So again, still most of the spending is still on traditional mediums, despite all the kind of the, the craze around digital art and NFTs, but it is a small and, and growing area. And I think a lot of the um, activity, particularly with related to NFTs, has actually been outside um, the market on NFT platforms. That's where we've seen a lot of um, activity with um, sales of NFTs, and that that's you know had been a real roller coaster. We've seen things, you know, the the art and collectibles NFTs sold on an external NFT platforms was only about five million in 2019, and obviously um, uh, in 2021 that was 11 billion. So it was a huge um, advance, and it's been a crazy thing to watch. And obviously a big drop then again this year, as we saw um, a lot of that rate related to the price of Ethereum dropping as well in the second half of the year. But it's still a much, much bigger market than it was. If you look at the um, the first half of 2022, 610 million in art-related um, NFTs sold on external platforms. So that's a big drop from 2.4 billion at the end of um, 
the second half of 2022, but it's still higher than the whole year of 2020 or the whole year of 2019. So it's a really rapidly growing area and a very, very interesting one to watch. So, yeah, that is interesting to, to, to see that there's still some, there's still, you know, significant interest there um, that we had a question, in fact, from a listener, Griffin, who, who asked, are NFTs dead or will digital art change the game in the future? So I guess the answer is clearly right. NFTs aren't dead, that, that art related. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, no, absolutely not. And I mean, it's really interesting in this um, sample of collectors, it's kind of paradoxical that we've seen spending on art related or art based NFTs um, or crypto art, as it's sometimes called, is has risen again in 2022 in this sample of, of kind of regular uh, wealthy collectors. It's grown. It was about 35,000, the median spend on, on crypto art in 2019. And that grew to 44 percent, 44,000, sorry, in 2021. And then in the first six months of this year, it, it edged edged up a little bit again to 46,000. Um, and um there was a small, uh, around just over 10% of the sample had spent over a million on crypto art as well. So it's not that people haven't kind of shied away from it completely. And I think a part of this is because we did ask the collectors as well where they buy the, these artworks from. And in this particular sample, with these regular art collectors, they're tending to buy their crypto art from galleries and auction houses, whereas this huge speculative rush we've seen and the big roller coaster up and down over the last kind of uh, 12 months has been outside on external platforms. And, um, you know, a lot of that uh, activity dying down was very, very speculative activity. So it's not people that were necessarily buying um, digital artworks to collect them. Um, or for their necessarily for their aesthetic or um, value, but they were buying them to resell them. And we we said that in the report last year in the um, annual report, the average turnaround on external platforms for art based NFTs was less than one month, oh. and that's that's an amazing you know from from the time someone buys it to sell selling it again is is in just over thirty days. So, I mean that that's a hugely speculative thing. So so that that falling away and the fact that. Some, some of that really intensely speculative activity falling away and the fact that the solid, more solid collectors are still spending is actually not a bad thing for, for a lot of the artists and the, the sellers involved in the market. It means there's still real demand there rather than just purely speculative um, things turning over. So it's not necessarily, I think it's still a really interesting area. And um, I think the real stuff, the genuinely valuable um, end of 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 the applications of NFTs will come out now that some of the some of the just pure pure speculation has been shaken out a little bit. People have seen the market goes down again. It doesn't just keep on going up. And the people that are always left behind are the people that actually are interested in the in the uh, in the medium as a from an art more artistic point of view. So I think some of that um, drop in 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 the bubble bursting in a little in the in a way has been in a funny way is a good thing for for art related NFTs. Right, it's it's allowed the the true art to to really um, come to the top, and I guess maybe be more be more noticed. It, it, that is really fascinating. Um, so the the survey also revealed that the number of works that collectors own varies quite a bit um, in terms of um, like the age of the artist that they collect. So collectors they don't tend to just buy works by late career artists or established artists or or even trendy. There's been quite a, a, a hot market in the last year or so for, for really, you know, super young artists and, um, you know, really emerging 
but um, but collectors that the collectors you surveyed really seem to have more of a mix. And I'm, I'm wondering if you could just elaborate a bit on what you found. Sure. I mean, I think there is that notion a little bit that traditionally that the high net worth collectors only buy you know top very top tier artists and that's all they they're interested in but that's absolutely not the case in this sample I and mean, if you look at the collections what they're made up of as we did you know 24 percent were brand new artists that's artists that might not even have representation in the gallery um yet but they're you know, kind of only in the last couple of years emerging onto the marketplace and then there's 23 percent are emerging they're they're kind of in galleries but you know for have a career of say less than less than 10 years and then 26% were mid-career and 27% were established or top the top tier. So, so the top tier was slightly larger, but but very well balanced, like a, nearly a quarter in each um, camp. And if you see, you know, you could see nearly half of the content of collections was new and emerging artists. And I think that's very reassuring for the market generally. <coughs> and I think that's pretty consistent, um, regardless of where collectors came from and some subtle differences in collecting between regions. And um, some of these trends, I think, are actually more, um, some of the similarities are probably more apparent um, with things like the age and the experience of the collector. And I think one interesting thing in this area was that um, as the experience with collecting increased, the, the share of expenditure on top tier art has actually declined. So very new collectors, for example, that were in the market only for a couple of years had over 40% of their spending was on, on very top tier artists. And when, whereas if you compare that to the more seasoned collectors of, of more than 20 years, that was just about 27%. So, so um, I think when people are new to the market, um, <coughs> excuse me, one way to reduce risk is to, to buy um, very well-established um, uh, artists that, that other people have collected before you and that that reduces the risk of the purchase whereas when you've been in the market for a little bit longer you're actually willing to take more risks so it's kind of it did turn the the generally perceived notion that um that first of all you know collectors these high net worth collectors only buy buy at the top which they don't and also that you know that it's new collectors are buying new artists it's not necessarily the case either you know it's the it's collectors that are actually in the market longer take a few more of the risks in their collection. So it was an interesting finding. Yeah, it's always it's so interesting when the data kind of uh, goes counter to what, yeah. your, <laughs> what your instincts might say. Um, so you, the report also talks a lot about the global art trade and, um, it, and you found that it's on pace to achieve record levels this year. Exports and imports are each up about 40%, slightly different for each, but about 40%. Can you tell us what the trends have been in the global art trade over the last few years and what you learned in doing this research? Yeah, no, it's fascinating to watch. I mean, we, we measure sales at the end of each year in, in the in the global report that I do every year. Mm -hmm. But this was a kind of a very interesting thing. This is just focusing on bilateral trade between countries and cross-border trade. So how much art is moving between um, different countries. So it's been really fascinating to see see it develop. And this is something I've been focused on for, you know, over a decade, you know, and in economics, there's something called a gravity model um, that uh, is from Newton's law of gravity. What drives two bodies together, if anyone can remember, is um, mass and distance. And it's the same in, in when you're talking about what draws two countries to trade together. And in this case, their mass is their economic weight. And for the art trade, it's very much um, 
wealth and wealth per capita. And distance is physical distance, but also a lot of other factors that relate to distance. So, so in terms of the, the weight, the economic weight, as countries get more wealthy, as more countries become more wealthy, there's a lot more countries trading art than there ever was. Um, and physical distance has become a little bit less important because it's easier to you know, buy and sell things online and it's easier to ship things around the world um, than it used to be. But there are other very important factors that create distance between countries. Um, and one of the big um, facets of that is, is regulatory distance. So regulations can put artificial distances between countries. And because of that, um, most of the art trade in art still happens through the biggest hubs, through the US, Hong Kong and the UK, and about two thirds of imports and exports happen through these hubs, um, despite how global the market has become. And it really has. I mean, I, I, I tracked it in the report. If you go back to the early 90s, there was only about 60 countries reporting imports of art. And that grew to about 175 by just before the financial crisis in, in 2008. And we have seen that kind of taper and decline a little bit. But it's amazing, even with the drop off again in the number of countries, the impact on values hasn't been that much. There's been a tiny bit of a deglobalization over the last couple of years but the impact on the value of imports has been much less because most of the trade is going on between these kind of three wealthy hubs. Um, so it's a very it's a very two tier market when you look at trade. There's obviously local markets that can be really active and dynamic, um, but they tend to be smaller. And then there's this large global um, exchange of art between between wealthy na nations and most of it going through these trade hubs. So it's it's a very interesting. Um, facet of the art trade uh, to have observed over a period of time, but um, really the, the the centers that become global hubs, particularly the U.S., are the ones that um, create the, the the best environment for the easiest exchange of art across borders. And that's that's so regulations are having an increasingly important role in where art sales take place, and places like New York get it right on that level. And this is why it, it's still kind of the headquarters of the, the global art market. Um, that's fascinating. Um, and but you make the point in, in the report that geographical diversification can really help the market avoid protracted recession. Um, so could you speak to that a little bit? And are, are we seeing signs of that already? I mean, just this past fall, there were a lot of Americans actively buying in London and Paris, given the strength of the dollar. Um, I don't know if that's a factor. Um, if if that plays into this or not, that'd be interesting to know. Um, and otherwise, also, I'm wondering about um, people who live outside of those major hubs. Are they just buying art locally? So um, I think just in, in there. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, I just, I, you know, the, the geographical diversification, I think this is a hugely important factor in why the art market is in much better shape now than it could have been, say, in the early 90s. And if we look back to the, the kind of boom and bust in the early 90s when um, the Japanese left the market in the late, they were buying up everything in the late 80s, but most of the sales were taking place in either New York or London. Um, and when the market crashed, the, the, it took nearly 15 years to, to get back to where it was. Whereas if you look at the global financial crisis and the, the kind of COVID-19 crisis that we've just seen in 2020, we're much quicker to bounce back. And this is for sure got to do with the um, a diverse range of, of countries involved in buying and selling in the market. And it's, it's um, you know, the, 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 the importance of these hubs is not, they're not, they're not, 
selling to people within the hubs. They're selling to, so demand comes from everywhere. It's just the, these hubs um, collect a critical mass of art in uh, enough art in one space for all the internet international collectors to come and buy from. So demand comes from everywhere. And that that's the big wealth factor that's, that's helped the, the, the wealthier, um, more diverse regions have become, the more they're actively involved in buying. But still the trade itself takes place through these business friendly, easy trading hubs like New York and, and London, for sure. I see, I see. Um, so you mentioned how it, it, the annual report that you do, that you do looks at um, you know total sales figures and last year it was a pretty big number 65.1 billion in sales and that was more than pre-pandemic levels um, that that figure was driven in a lot by sales at the very high end of the market which you know we talked about a little mm -hmm. bit earlier um, is there any concern that those sales could dip as a result of stock market volatility currency weakness outside of the US or do you see from what you can tell right now, do you see the market on pace to match or exceed that result in 2022? Well, it's it's really hard to predict. I, I hate to kind of yeah. forecast because I just things are so predictable, and it's so, there's so much happens in the second half of the year as well. Um, that's that's one thing that we've all seen. These big sales that are coming up um, can kind of make or break things in the auction sector, and there's a lot of things happening, as you mentioned at the start. Miami is around the corner, and all all of these things will. will kind of make or break it this year but obviously the trade figures the high net worth collective surveys we've just done that they're all very strong indicators of of a good year um but you know you have to qualify that in that these these surveys i mean there was 2700 responses out of you know possibly a pool of millions of of collectors so it is a very um small and wealthy bubble that's some some you know somewhat immune to the kind of volatile economic context that we're in um but one one good thing i think is that you know even when things like the, the stock market is volatile and when when um there is other underlying issues economically and politically and socially you know people do as i said they tend to anchor on on um assets that they see as as a good store of value and again as i, I said even if they don't um i think the big thing that a lot of collectors don't like is they don't like selling things that they buy um so they're not not great investments in that way and that people are often reticent to sell works that they buy but they do see art as a as a tangible store of value and i think that's always um stands to it when things are very uncertain and volatile that that people are drawn more um whether it's financially or just um you know socially and aesthetically to to the art market so you know volatile economic contexts don't worry the art market that way as long as you can get people to sell that's the main problem it's a very supply driven marketplace so the biggest thing is vendors being put off um in the secondary market um, perceiving it as a as a bad time to sell something. So if you were facing into a, a very kind of bearish economy, um, and you know you had a choice of whether to to sell a masterpiece this year or next year, you might hang on and wait and see. And that that's when the problems start to arise. If if the auction houses and galleries can get things onto the market, people will be waiting in the wings always to buy them because it's the market is at the end of the day driven by scarcity. That's the real thing that that drives it. And uh, we're going to, well, I should say there's there's clear evidence of this kind of at play uh, this fall, uh, later this month, there, there are major auctions taking place in New York, yeah. including um, 
yeah, some very big sales. So that does seem to show uh, the one that's probably most noticeable. Notable is um, at Christie's, Paul Allen's collection. He's the yeah. former um, co-founder. Well, he's the co-founder of Microsoft. He his he uh, died a few years ago. His family is is putting his collection up for sale. All the money's going to uh, philanthropy, but. Um, it, it that's a, the fact that they're willing to do that now would seem to be somewhat of a positive sign for the for the market. Um, and so so far this year, auction sales have really pointed to strength and 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 in these big ticket purchases. Um, can can you speak to that a little bit? What have been the results at the at the major houses so far this sure. year? I mean, if you look, I always find it useful when we gather all of the data at the end of the year, so you can you can't kind of say too much until that's a very crucial second half um, of the year is finished. But mm -hmm. if you look at, I always look at the multinational, the biggest multinational houses of Christie's, Sotheby's and Phillips, and they were up in the first half of the year, they were up over 20% on the same period in 2021. So it's a strong, very strong start to the to the year already. And as you said, the Paul Allen sale, the David Solinger sale at Sotheby's is all some right. amazing kind of masterworks. They're, they're kind of, they're a little bit no fail um, sales, very, you know, very very strong across it it's, it's lovely to see actually across a range of different categories so it's not all just um kind of contemporary and post-war and contemporary art there's a range of works um coming up for sale and these these um kind of important collections have been so successful at christie's and sotheby's so i mean you're kind of looking at it now we're looking at a very very strong season unless something goes catastrophically wrong but i mean you know it, it does everything points to to a very strong year and it's the same on the gallery side. I think, um, you know, at the few fairs I've been to and from the galleries I've, I've spoken to, they haven't in any way said it's been an easy year by any stretch, um, but they have done well um, through perseverance and, and really working at it. And I think the fairs coming back and things like that too has really helped, you know, because people have been really um, uh, dying to engage again in person and to, to, to have that uh, sense of shared experience again. And that has really helped things as well. Yeah, everyone is seems so excited just to be able to to see, not only to see the art, but to see other other art lovers and their friends when they go to the fairs. Um, so a, a lot of our purchases, you know, despite that, a lot of our purchases moved online in twenty and in twenty 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 one, and of course that was it, there was no other way to buy art in, in it's particularly in twenty twenty, but. Do you see that sticking? Are online purchases still strong for galleries and fairs and, and also auction houses? And do you expect that the online digital purchases will continue to be, you know, a strong part of the art market? Absolutely. No, I think so. I think, you know, I think the pandemic really gave um, people a chance to people who hadn't been that active digitally to try it out. As you said, they were forced to, they had no other kind of options. And um, I think where the experience was was positive, they they will maintain that and do it again. I mean, and the art trade itself, I think has been really instrumental there. They've really improved the experience for, for collectors um, from exhibitions and viewing to how easy and safe it is to transact. Um, so it's been kind of a push and pull thing from, from both sides. But but the surveys still show every every year and, and remarkably again this year that the in-person experience is still what people want. Um, so given a choice, people will um, 
people will buy online and more people are doing so. But given a choice, people still would prefer to buy offline. And I actually think that's where it's going to get quite competitive is um, people, you know, are reducing slightly the number of, of um, art related events, real world kind of in-person events that they're going to. So as they become a little bit more choosy, um, I think uh, it'll be down to the fairs and the events to make it even more compelling and engaging as people are that little bit more choosy about which ones and how many events they're going to attend. But I think in terms of a kind of a dual marketplace online and offline, that's definitely here to stay. That's great. Well, thank you, Claire. We've come to the end of end of our session, even though I wasn't wasn't quite ready. I have much, many more questions to ask, but <laughs> but thank you so much for sharing your really inc incomparable insights about and knowledge about the art market as we head into this final That's stretch fine. of the year. Um, and to thank our you. listeners, join us again on Monday when uh, Baron Senior Managing Editor Lauren Rublin and Deputy Editor Ben Levison and David Kelly, who is Chief Global Strategist at J.P. Morgan Asset Management, discuss the outlook for financial markets, industry sectors, and individual stocks. Thanks, everybody. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.